0: The Old Testament reading this week is from Psalm 118, verses 1 and 2, and 14 through 24. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my defense, he has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live. I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous may enter I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this to this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The New Testament reading this week is John 20, verse 1 through 18. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for i have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them i am returning to my father and your father to my god and your god. Mary Magdalene went went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the lord and she told them what he had said that he had said those these things to her. This is the word of the
2: Lord. The Gospel according to John. In the first video, we saw that John wrote this book to make the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the human embodiment of God's word and glorious presence who has come to reveal who God truly is. Then we explored how John designed the first half of the book to demonstrate this claim. Jesus performed miraculous signs and made huge claims about himself that he is the reality to which Israel's entire history points. And this all generates controversy, however, and the Jewish leaders confront Jesus for all these claims. And it culminated with Jesus laying down his life for his friend Lazarus. By going near Jerusalem to raise him from the dead, Jesus sealed his fate. And so once the plot to murder Jesus is set in motion, we come into the book's second half. The first part focuses entirely on Jesus' final night and last words to the disciples as he tries to prepare them for his coming death. Jesus performs this shocking act at dinner. He takes on the role of a common servant by kneeling down to wash their dirty feet. Something that in their culture a superior rabbi would never do for his disciples. And Jesus says it is a symbol of his entire life purpose to reveal the true nature of God as a being of self-giving love. And it's also a symbol of what Jesus is about to do in becoming a servant and giving up his life to die for the sins of the world. And so this act leads to his great command to his disciples that they are to follow him by loving one another as he has loved them. Acts of loving generosity are to be the hallmark of Jesus' followers. This is what will show the world who Jesus is, and therefore who God is. Now from here, Jesus goes into a long flowing speech that's concluded with a prayer. And you'll find the whole thing is unified by a few repeated themes. Jesus keeps saying that he's going away, which makes the disciples sad. But Jesus says it's for the best because it means that he will send the Spirit, also known as the Advocate. As a human, Jesus can only be in one place at a time, but the Spirit can be Jesus' divine personal presence in any place at any time. And the Spirit will do a number of things, Jesus says. So remember, for John, the unique deity of the one God consists of that loving, unified relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus says the Spirit is that loving personal presence that will come to live in his people and draw them into the love between the Father and the Son. And so, Jesus says, his disciples are the ones who abide or remain in that divine love, the way that branches are connected to a vine. He's describing here how the personal love of God can permeate a person's life, healing, transforming, and making them new. And there's more. The Spirit will also empower Jesus' followers to carry on his mission in the world to, first of all, fulfill the great command to love others through radical acts of service. But also, Jesus says, the mission is to bear witness to the truth. To expose and name the selfish, sinful ways that we as humans treat each other, and to declare that in Jesus, God has saved the world through him because he loves it. He's opened up a new way to become human again. And so finally, Jesus predicts that there will be opposition. Just as the Jewish leaders rejected him, so his followers will be persecuted. But he tells them not to be afraid because he has already conquered or gained victory over the world. Now, what does Jesus mean by victory here? He doesn't say, but it leads us into the final section of the book where John shows us what victory looks like Jesus style. The Jewish leader sends soldiers to Jesus and his disciples to arrest him. And when the soldiers ask which one Jesus is, he declares, I am, and they fall backward. Now this is brilliant on John's part. These words are the culmination of two sets of seven instances where Jesus has used that very phrase. And it all highlights one of John's core claims about Jesus. The words, I am, were in Greek, ego and they are the Greek translation of the Hebrew personal covenant name of God that was revealed to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. It was also repeated many times in Isaiah. And John has strategically placed seven moments in his story where Jesus says, I am followed by some astounding claim I am the bread of life I am the light of the world the gate for the sheep the good shepherd the resurrection the way the truth and the life the true vine and John's also designed seven other stories that have key moments where Jesus says simply I am echoing this divine name. And so here this occurrence as Jesus is arrested, it's the ironic climax of all of them because Jesus reveals his divine name and power and victory precisely at the moment that he gives up his life. After this, Jesus is put on trial for his exalted claims to be the Son of God and the King of Israel. First before the high priest and then before the Roman governor, Pilate, who has to take seriously anyone who is charged with claiming to be the King of Israel. And Jesus tells Pilate that my kingdom is not from this world. Meaning that he is a king and that his kingdom is for this world but its radically different value system, its redefinition of power and greatness, none of this is derived from this world. Rather they are defined by God's character that Jesus has revealed through his upside down kingdom which is epitomized by the cross. It is the place where the world's true king conquers sin and evil by letting it conquer him. And Jesus gains victory over the world Through an act of self-giving love. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb that is then sealed. And on the first day of the week, Mary and then later the other disciples discover that the tomb is strangely open and then empty. And then Mary, all of a sudden, she meets Jesus. He's alive from the dead. Now, the resurrection of Jesus connects back to another pattern of sevens in John's gospel. So all the way back at the wedding party in Cana, when Jesus turned the water into wine, John told us that that was Jesus' first sign. And he also identified the second sign, the healing of the sick boy in chapter 4. But after this, John just lets you keep count. And if you have, you'll have noticed that the sixth sign was the raising of Lazarus from the tomb which Jesus performed at the cost of his own life. And so that and all of the signs, they point forward to this seventh and greatest sign at the culmination of the story, Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. It vindicates Jesus' claim to be The Son of God, the author of all life, whose love has conquered death itself. After the empty tomb, Jesus then meets up with all the disciples, and he commissions them by sending the Spirit as he promised, so that his mission from the Father can now be carried on through them. After this, the book concludes with an epilogue that explores the ongoing mission of Jesus' disciples in the world. So a number of them are fishing and they're not catching anything. And so Jesus appears to them on the shore. They don't recognize him, though. And he tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. And when they obey him, they catch a huge amount of fish. And it's only then that they recognize him as Jesus. Now John's offering here a picture of discipleship. To Jesus, His followers will be most effective in the world when their focus is not on their work as such, but on simply listening for Jesus' voice and obeying him when he speaks. That is when they will truly see him at work in their lives. After this, Jesus talks with Peter and then commissions him as a unique leader in the Jesus movement, indicating that he too will give up his life one day. But in contrast to Peter, the last moments of the story focus on the author of this gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And unlike Peter, his job was not to lead the Jesus movement, but rather to spend his long life bearing witness to Jesus so that others might believe in him. And that's actually what he's done right here by authoring this amazing story about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's what the Gospel of John is all about.
3: Good morning, Sherman Street. He is risen. We say that so confidently, but no one expected it to happen. No one expected Easter. No one really expected Jesus either, but once he came, even after he had taught, even though he told his disciples that he would have to die and rise again, still no one expected Easter. It seems to be how it is with the grace of God. We imagine one way that things should happen, what God should do or compel others to do. And just as we're looking for grace over here, it comes in just over there. It's surprising and unexpected. And my friend Hildy wrote this poem about um, what, where she describes Jesus as coming in through the side door. Not the way we'd expect, not right up front, not at all flashy. He comes in through the side door. And sometimes, like Mary in this passage, that means that we have to turn around, and maybe even more than once, in order to see him. I love the confusion in John 20 for this reason. You'd think that here, finally, Jesus would come in a blaze of glory, like we kind of all want God to do. Like, great, Jesus showed us God's humility by being born in a stable, and showed us how to love by walking alongside the least of these, and welcoming the outsiders. He showed us that the kingdom of God was different than the kingdoms of the world by resisting violence at every turn and sacrificing himself for his accusers. Every move was surprising in its humility and its gentleness and its littleness. But now, in the moment of vindication, when Jesus is finally proved to be the Son of God after all, when death and sin have been conquered for good, left behind in the tomb while Jesus walks out. Now you would think that this is the moment for a little celebration, just a little fanfare, like maybe some dazzling clothes or some fireworks and a bottle of champagne. But no, it's just Mary alone in the garden weeping. At first, when she looks into the tomb, she assumes that Jesus' body was stolen, and then later when she looks again, she sees a couple of angels in there, but she doesn't really seem to grasp what she's seeing. She just talks to them like it's no big deal, which is a bit strange. Most people, when they see angels, they fall on their faces, or they start to worship, or they're scared, or something, but not Mary. She just says, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. And then Mary turns. And she sees Jesus, but she thinks he's the gardener. Mary is not looking for grace just now. She's deep in grief. Her hope has gone, and grace sneaks up on her anyways. Mary, Jesus says, and she turns again, and she sees who the gardener really is. This gardener is the king of all it's so mundane, so anticlimactic, really. But God has always been a gardener. I don't know why we don't talk about this more. Um, we always talk about how God created the world, but right after the creation was complete, God planted a garden. All you who are planting seeds now, planting your flower beds and your vegetable patches, you are carrying on a great tradition of the Almighty. Genesis 2, eight says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the human he had formed. God has been a gardener since the beginning. And we, being made in God's image, are meant to be gardeners too. To tend and keep what God has made. But of course, you know how the story goes, right? Through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world. And every relationship that once was whole became fractured and broken. People became afraid of God and one another. They hid themselves in shame and fear. They shifted blame, they accused each other and God. They became their own enemies and the enemy of the very creation they were intended to serve. Their very vulnerability, just being themselves out in the open became a threat and a danger to them. And things spiraled from there. We've been reading a lot or hearing a lot about that spiral as we've gone through the books of the Old Testament through the history, which is often dark, and through the prophets, who continually call people back to faithfulness, to love God and to love neighbor. But then more often than not, they watch while the people continue to exploit, oppress, and harm each other and the land, to disregard their God. And we understand it all probably a little better than we want to, because how often do we know the right thing to do even as we can't get ourselves to do it. We have sinned by what we have done and by what we have left undone. In the Gospel of John, John talks about light and darkness a lot. Like he notes that Mary came to the tomb while it was still dark. And throughout the Gospel, in this, with this language of light and dark, it seems like he's trying to say that we spend most of our time stumbling around in the dark thinking that we know where we're going when really we're lost. Like when you wake up um, in a hotel room or you're visiting a friend, it's just a room you're not used to, Um, and the room is dark and you can't quite remember how to get to the bathroom or even how to find the door. Or maybe you think you know and you go confidently directly into a wall. Um, You're likely to stumble around for a while, just trying to find what you need sin has so muddled us and our world that we just can't see clearly anymore and we stumble around in the dark i think that's why so much of what jesus says seems confusing jesus is the light of the world and he speaks as the light to a people who are much more accustomed to the darkness and even as those who recon- even as those who recognize jesus for who, who he is Still, it seems, it takes time for our eyes to adjust to his light. And even when that light is full in our faces, we still have to figure out how to make sense of what we're seeing. This new way of being in a world full of light when we are so used to the darkness. I think that's one of the reasons why God's work is often so surprising. Like, why show up in a bush that was on fire? why get the water from the rock why speak to balaam from a donkey like so many things are unexpected no one expected that when the messiah came that it would be god's own self in the flesh no one expected that that messiah would be so dang humble so gentle Like, what about throwing off Roman rule? What about vindicating all of Israel? What about revolution? What about just making things right, right now? But instead, Jesus knelt down by the adulteress and wrote on the ground, drawing eyes away from her and onto himself, protecting her from shame. Instead, he gathered the children into his arms. He let a sinner Samaritan woman be his first evangelist. He washed feet. He shared meals with the sinner and the religious leader, with the tax-collecting traitors and the patriotic revolutionaries. He was supposed to save Israel, but he didn't even save himself. No one expected Jesus. And even after they knew him as Messiah, no one expected the resurrection. And so Mary stands weeping outside the tomb and the disciples are gathered in their room confused and afraid and Peter is wallowing in the shame of his betrayal and Judas has gone and killed himself. Because what makes sense in the darkness doesn't always make sense in the light. And what makes sense in the light doesn't always make sense in the darkness. And even if like Mary, you know the light and you love it. It takes time to get a handle on what we are seeing. We have to turn and turn again to face it. and Let our eyes and our lives adjust. In the dark, a missing body, could only mean that it's stolen. In the dark, a real king is powerful and mighty because power and violence have the last word there, In the dark, if you don't fight back or run away, you will be crushed. Because in the dark, dead is dead is dead. And there's nothing left to do but weep. But Jesus is the light of the world. And surprising things can happen in the light. In the light of Jesus, it turns out that death is just a door to pass through because life and love have the last word here. In the light, you can die to save your accusers, because laying down your life might just be the most powerful thing that you can do to make a change. And in the light, the king of all looks just like the gardener, humble and tender, bending low to nurture every bit of fledgling life. Concerned with the flourishing of the world, not the conquering of it. Hopeful and watching. Submitted to the will of the Father, who sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. In the light, the gardener is the king. And his kingdom belongs to the poor and the persecuted. And in that kingdom, the earth belongs to the meek and our hunger and thirst for goodness will be satisfied and the pure in heart will see their God and the peacemakers will be called God's children. Our God continues to surprise. We gather on Easter because we are the people of the light. Our eyes may not have adjusted all the way and we may still at times behave like we love the darkness but we are the people who proclaim the light of the world and the resurrection. We are the people who believe that a tomb is just the right place to find hope, that death is exactly what you need if you wanna find new life. And so we are the people who can look out into this world expecting that the God of surprise will show up in the most unlikely places. We can walk into tense and unknown situations, into conflict, into fear, into danger, saying, I wonder, I wonder what God will do now. What does this place look like in the light? How will resurrection happen here? We walk through the world expecting the surprise to come because our God so often sneaks in through the side door, astonishing us with a grace that we didn't even know to look for. Like Mary, when we hear him call our name, we turn toward him. And we spend our lives in that turning, letting our eyes adjust to the light. Where Jesus is risen, where death is no match for life, Where a stranger may turn out to be an angel or even Christ himself. Where resurrection is even more real than the tomb. And where our hope is steady in the one who's bringing this whole world into his glorious light. Reconciling all things to himself. And making all things new. Please pray with me. Lord, like, like Paul, may the scales fall from our eyes. May we learn to live in the light rather than in the darkness. May we see clearly the ways that you work in the world, the ways that you are bringing new life, even in the midst of death. Lord, may we be more and more every day the people of the light who welcome your kingdom into this world. In Jesus' name, amen.